talking about um, what it means to be a wanderer and uh, how we kind of navigate this world as wanderers. And I think it's also a theme that comes up pretty common in culture, just has a common theme in films. I really think films are our times like holy books, like we create stories that we really want to believe in. Um, and I mean, there's that story of the, the soul wanderer out there by himself is like a classic trope of the hero story that we all want to see on the screen. We all want to see reflected in our lives. Uh, maybe one of the classic stories is Luke Skywalker, right? He's this kid in some like far-flung backwoods planet, and he's like, he's, he has this feeling he's meant for something more, but he can't really describe what it is. But as he goes through the journey, he discovers who he is. Uh, he becomes, he works at becoming a Jedi, and so then he becomes a Jedi. So he's like working towards this identity of something that he's like reaching for, but only after he's worked for it does he actually get the thing. Now, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen all the Star Wars films, I kind of, I don't need to say spoiler alert because I kind of don't care. You're missing out. Um, got to be, a, you know, got to be on nerd level to roll with me. But the, um, eventually, despite even Luke Skywalker, who's like the ultimate kind of hero in the story, even his good motives, he can't help but mess things up. And what does he do? Like the last couple films, he's, outcasted by himself, alone on an island. He's lost faith in himself. He's lost faith in the Jedi. He's lost faith in the Force to begin with. So even, like, no one can be like Luke Skywalker, but even if you were like Luke Skywalker, you still wouldn't be good enough to pull the thing off. He has completely lost his identity. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He's outcasted himself. He was a wanderer. He goes through all this stuff, and he chooses to go back to being a wanderer because he doesn't have an identity. Now, the goal for a wanderer in all these kinds of films, rise up, become the hero, find who they truly are. And there's a, there's a shadow side to this because it's all tied to what the hero does. In this hero story, our being can only come from our doing. We only are what we're able to produce. And if we can't produce something good, then we're not something good. And nobody, not even Luke Skywalker, can live as a hero in everyday life. I don't care how good you think you are. But the answer to being a wanderer without an identity is not to rise up and become the hero yourself. It's to surrender to the hero who has already been raised up. You get to be freed from that never-ending cycle that is burdensome. I mean, for all of us, we're all trying to construct our own identities, our own hero stories. And the, isn't it strange when we construct a hero story about ourselves? all our stories end up exactly about ourselves? Of course they do. We're completely self-focused, self-centered, kind of egocentric. The, if we could organize the solar system, surely it would revolve around us. But that process of finding yourself, it never really satisfies. There's always more work to do. There's always more things to find out. And then when you find out, actually, I'm not as great as maybe I thought, it was, I, thought I was, that can be crushing. And over time, though, that weight gets heavier and heavier. And so we try and relieve that weight. And we kind of give in a little bit. We give up a little bit. Maybe we burn out a little bit. And even if we can limp along in the end, this whole process, it's very self-centered, very uh, ego-driven. It can only really be an inward journey, and that's very limiting because we are made for so much. We're so much more than that. We're made for too much that we can even find out on our own. The uh, inward hero journey is far too small for who God has created us to be. So let's not sell ourselves short and think we can pull this off by ourselves. Now, what if instead of working yourself to death, for an identity you will never actually really get, or at least you'll never really enjoy, what if instead of that you were given an identity that gives you a new life? Not one that comes from our work, but one that we get to work out of. And that's what the gospel is all about.
That's what this section in, in 1 Peter is all about. To get the identity we want, we don't rise up to become the hero. We surrender to the hero who has already been risen. And in that surrendering, what we get to do is we uncover that new identity that Jesus has already given us. So we get to live into our authentic selves that we've already been given. That's an amazing thing. That can be a really freeing thing. And so what we're going to uh, discover today is how Jesus sees us wandering around, kind of sort, trying to sort out life on our own, and under that weight, under that self-obsession, even in light of all of that, he remakes us. And he doesn't make us work for an identity. He gives it to us freely, like a crazy, generous psychopath. He's just going to give you something that you don't even deserve. And our new identity is one that isn't merely focused inward, but one that gets to be focused upward and outward as well. So Jesus saves us from our self-centered stories, our self-obsessed egos, and builds us into something more. And at it, it, this little section that we have here, these verses, we have two metaphors that Peter's kind of working at. One is this new temple, and one is this new people. So we're going to look at, first we're going to look at this new temple. I know we looked at it a few weeks ago from another passage, but Peter talks about it in a different way. Uh, so we'll look at what that means, and then we'll look at what it means to be a new people, and then we'll ask the question, like, so, like, so what? What is that? How does that change my life? So a new temple and new people. So it's first, these first uh, verses four through eight is this new temple metaphor that Paul talks about. He said, as you all come to Jesus, you are being built into a temple. That's what he says. As you come to him, the living stone. He calls Jesus the, uh, the living stone, capital S. And we are the small stones, uh, small S. And just like Jesus is the Christ, which means the king, we are little Christs, little Christians. We are not the king, but we're kind of, we emulate that. Fun fact, Christians were originally called Christians because it was like a derogatory term for people being, oh, look at those little Christs. And Christians are like, yeah, that sounds about right. We can be that now. And so they call themselves Christians. So own when people make fun of you, I guess is the, uh, the name of the game there. Uh, so, the, okay, we are, verse five, the uh, New International Version says, you also, like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house. That's what a temple is, a spiritual house. A temple of the spirit, where God lives. And we've talked about this idea of what it means to be a temple. And when we did the church, that really brief church near me series, and we used this image in the middle of September, uh, and it's the overlap between heaven and earth. We have heaven and earth. The overlap is where the temple is, where God and man meet. The overlap between where God and man meet together. The spiritual house that Peter is talking about doesn't rely on a building. Obviously, we can use buildings. It doesn't rely on it. It doesn't exist in your own heart because you all are a spiritual house. It, it, it exists in the local church, and the church is the people. It exists in the relationships that we have with each other, with the Lord and with the community. That's what Peter's telling us. You also, like you plural also, like living stones, are being built. Greek is weird in that uh, verbs can be plural. We don't have that in our language. Uh, but it's a plural verb there. You are being built into a spiritual house. Redeemer Church exists in the scene between heaven and earth. That's where we live. That's where we exist. And there's a goal for this temple. There's a, 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 there's a reason for this thing. In verse 5, you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There's another identity thing. A holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. In this spiritual house... We are part of spiritual priests, we're spiritual ministers together, and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, this idea, this idea of being holy, uh, we've talked about previously, and the, the kind of thing that we were talking about was, just to remember, 
Holy means whole. It means like a wholeness, a completeness. Everything that you need is a complete satisfaction. And so we are told to be holy here, but before that, we are holy. We are a holy priesthood. And let's say work yourself into being a holy priesthood. Like this is who you are. You are holy, so you're supposed to live that way. We're made holy first, then to act like it. We're called to act like who we are. Jesus gives his followers the identity of a priesthood. Not just the guy up front, everybody. That's who we are. And because it's who we are, what we get to do is offer spiritual sacrifices. You don't offer, and we'll talk about that, what that means in a second. You don't offer spiritual sacrifices in order to become a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood, so that's what you do. If you're a priest, that's what you do. It's kind of like your job. If you're a priest and you aren't doing that, then you're not living out of your true self. You're not living out of who you really are. So as we follow the living stone, capital S, we as the living stones are all part of the structure of God's dwelling. Brick by brick, God is building his church. And we're seeing even Redeemer is just one part of that, right? And we're seeing how Redeemer is growing in that. But think of the church as in like capital C church, like the church in Manchester. Like we're a very small part of that pie. But God is even in, he's building his church even through that way. And if you've been with Redeemer for any length of time, you know some things have not come easy. I was actually, I don't know why it came into my head. I was thinking uh, when we first got in here, I was like, who built that storage container? I, I think we had to build the storage container. Do you remember who built that? Is anyone? Somebody had to. I don't know. I don't think it was me. Some, I mean, like all those small little things. That's part of what it means to be part of a holy priesthood. Even things as, that, no one, that apparently everyone will forget about uh, and no one will really know like who built the storage container. I don't know who built that thing, but we need it because otherwise we won't be able to hear each other. All those things is what it means to be uh, being built into this priesthood. Now, you've probably heard of uh, this idea of like upward mobility, people who are upwardly mobile. Um, Basically, it's this idea of you work hard, you get a job, you buy a house, you get a better paying job, you get a bigger house. It's kind of the work success hero story. There's nothing wrong with that at all. There's no problem with that. Where that gets us into sticky situations is when we apply that to our spiritual lives. I'm just gonna work hard, I'll, get, I'll go up the ladder, I'll bring up the, rung, the rungs and like God's gonna like me more. Or more people in my church will think I'm like responsible or a leader or whatever. That's completely fine in the work world to work hard and, and buy a house, that's completely fine. But we, I think, with unconsciously, we import that into our relationship with Jesus and with people in the church. So the real trouble is that we think in order to grow, we do more, we attain more, we get certain positions, or we get associated with stuff that is growing or that will give us maybe in the future those kind of positions. Henri Nouwen, who um, was a fantastic Christian writer, he's dead now, uh, had a great way of describing the Christian life. He said, the Christian life is not about being upwardly mobile. It's about downward mobility. It's about downward mobility. That's what it means to, be, to come to the foot of the cross, to see ourselves as humble people, not as people who are trying to attain more to, to be seen good in other people's eyes, but to realize we don't deserve anything. Like, why, why are we concerned about what other people think? And also, God's not accepting me on the basis of how good of a spiritual sacrifice I'm like. He already has accepted me through what Jesus has done. So that leads us to a life of downward mobility. And in fact, it's not even serving first. It's being served first by God himself and by others. It's not changing the world first. It's getting your world changed first. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what's meant by being built. We are being built. It's a process. It's ongoing. Jesus is the one who builds us. We can't be built up properly 
if we're struggling to get ahead on our own terms. Those two things, they don't work. They're, they're, at, they're in opposition. To be built up properly, the builder requires us to be in a place of surrender. No brick ever says, I don't know, should you put me there? To the builder. Like, I think I should probably go over here. Or, are you using enough mortar? I don't know. Did you mix it properly? No, every brick is just like, okay, cool. Like, I guess I'm going here. Like, no. I, I think everybody's response is that. <laughs> That's so good. I'm not sure about it either, Siri. That's exactly, if a brick, that's exactly, no, no brick doing the job that a brick ought to do, being placed on the, on the wall would be, sorry, I'm just not still sure, not sure about that. You can be not sure about that, but as long as you're in a place of surrendering to that lack, that means, and that means something radical. That means we have to trust someone other than ourselves with our lives. That is opposite to the hero story. Hero story, it's all on you. And so there's a level of, oh, it may not be great, but at least I can control it. This is a level of like kind of radical lack of control when we surrender. And that's a really scary thing. I totally get that. It takes a long time to develop that because it takes trust. It takes following the person of Jesus, not the idea of Jesus. The, the person of who God is, not the rules that God has set out first. That's a very different kind of situation. So what in the world really does it mean to be a temple? Because a theological nerd like me, I'm quite satisfied ending there. Like, that's cool. I'm just going to think about that for a long time. But theological nerd or not, we all need to know how does that change our life? Well, the one we follow was chosen by God, rejected by us. That's what it says here. It's what Peter writes here. It's what God's telling us. He was precious to the Father, not originally precious to us, not precious to people who aren't believers yet. Now, if Jesus is precious, your life will be organized differently because it changes things. Whatever is most precious in your life, you're just going to live life differently. Your goals are going to be different. And what does it mean to be holy priests that offer spiritual sacrifices to this precious one? Well, Paul in Romans, I think, helps us a little bit, kind of teases this out a little bit. Romans 12.1, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so God's being so good to us, to do this, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. This is a level of what a spiritual sacrifice is, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So God has offered, uh, God has, has given all of himself to you. He's, given, he's not held back. He's given all of himself to you so that you get to give all of yourself to him. It's not a bad thing to do that. In fact, it's a really good thing. It's an opportunity for us to be able to give ourselves to him, to give all of yourself to all of God, not just like the parts that we are cool with or that we're easily like. Because as we might see next week, or maybe every week, God's offensive, and that's just kind of how he is. Specifically in maybe like the big three relationships is where we get to give ourselves, with God, with each other, and the people who aren't part of the, part of the church yet. And we're going to get to more of what that means like later on in like towards the end of the sermon. But first, before, reading it, before any of that, I think what we need to get first and really drill it down, and maybe I, we will repeat it often, because I know I need it, and I think you do too. This is who you are. You get to be part of the us because of what Jesus has done. This is part of who you are. It's your fundamental self. The way to remind yourself of who you are, of being a new temple, you're going to have to hear his words more than just on a Sunday. You're going to have to read his words for yourself. You're going to have to speak to him through prayer and to do both of those things with other people. Like That's just how he's made us, and that's how we remember who we really are. 
We all need to hear these words. We need to be fluent in them in a way that just kind of roll off our tongues just as the English language would because we need to be speaking them to each other as we hang out. And in our hanging out with each other, as we do that, we're going to invite other people who don't yet believe the same thing about Jesus and we're gonna love them in the same kind of way. This also changes how we organize our missional communities. Because we believe these, these words are real, we organize our missional communities in a way that's more difficult. We don't do things that are easy. We organize their missional communities. So if our communities aren't in being involved in some kind of missional aspect, which means loving people who aren't part of Jesus' church yet, then we, re- we change things up. Our missional communities in the, in the midst of that. Even as we just prayed for the Projects MC, we're like figuring out what does it mean to, to be that. Is God still wanting us to be that? And we have to make our MCs easy and welcoming for all to join in, regardless of where they might be with Jesus yet. And that also changes how we pray. Because when we pray in ways of, God, I don't know what we're doing here. You need to lead us. I'm not the one with the plans. You're the one with it, so we need to follow you. And the way we can live in this kind of otherworldly, all-in kind of way is because that's who we are. Jesus made us to be that way. We are holy priests, and this is, means this is how we live. Not to be a hero, heroes burn out. Not to be a hero, but to rely on the hero. And as wanderers who come to Jesus, we are made into a new temple. We're also made, and this is another image that Peter gives, because people um, who were, Peter was writing to, they had to get multiple metaphors as well. They had to hear it as, as often as we did. They're made into a new people. This is verses 9 and 10, and I really think, uh, and not just me, but other commentators as well, think verses 9 and 10 are like the, the crux of the entire book. Like if, you, if we understood 9 and 10 well, you'd probably get most of 1 Peter uh, maybe even without even reading it all. But, and most of 1 Peter kind of teases out what verses 9 and 10 are like. I'll just read it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We get a list of who we are. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, special possession, not a people to a people. Let's just kind of briefly run down what these things mean. Because it's easy in lists to just kind of be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But what, like, what does this mean? First of all, chosen people. For Peter's original audience, these are people who are not in Jerusalem. They have Jewish backgrounds. They're Jewish believers, Jewish backgrounds. But they're like far flung. They're kind of like you know, out there on the outskirts. If you were a Jewish person living outside the promised land and reading this, hearing chosen people you would immediately connect it to the God who rescued the Israelites out of exile. That's like the kind of way that God talked to his people as they're being rescued in the Old Testament. And really what we hear there is, and what they heard and what we can hear, is God is the rescuer of our wandering. We're all out there wandering. God is the rescuer. And he's made us in that kind of special relationship. That's what it means to be his chosen people. Royal priesthood, uh, we were called a holy priesthood, now, we're also a royal priesthood. Holy and royal meant like, where are our robes, right? A, ho- a royal priesthood works for the kingdom of God before anything. You're given a commission. And part th- this commission you've been given is so close to us, it becomes an, a fundamental identity. It becomes who we are. You're given the commission of reflecting the new heavens and earth in your own unique way here as you live out on earth. I might be a minister at Redeemer, but I'm not at a law firm I'm not, you know, in the school system. I'm not, you know, work, I, I'm not working in tech. I don't do those things, but you do. 
And, we, and God needs everybody working in order to reflect that together. We're all ministers. We're all called to be part of this thing. Holy nation, God has brought people together from many backgrounds. And our church is like that too. Many different kinds of backgrounds we have here. If you have a church background, it's probably different than any other person's church background. If you don't have a church background, that one's different too. That's what I love about Redeemer. And a holy nation is this idea that God has brought people together from many different backgrounds, many different nations to form something new. And this new nation is not based on an economy. It's not based on geographical boundaries. It's not based on a language. It's based on what God has done through his son, rooted in who God is. And God's special possession means you mean something to God. Every single one of you means something to God. You may not always feel like it, but that just means you're not feeling the truth, the reality. Every single person, you mean something to God. He's kept you. He's kept us. Lord knows our church has many opportunities to fall over and not exist anymore, but he's kept us. We're his special possession. Our church is God's special possession. He's going to do with it what he wants, and we just kind of get to surrender to that. And we get to rest in his goodness as he does so. And then there's a summary at the end in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. It's not once uh, you were not God's people. It's once you were not a people. Not even connected at all. Isolated. Out there, wandering out by yourself without a home or an identity of your own. And you had not yet received God's mercy, but now you are a people. Because now you have. You know what it's like. Many, if not all of us, know this image very well. Ooh, twitchy. Zoom call. It's the image of people who are connected in one way, but still isolated from each other. I mean, connected through the internet, of course. We're chatting to each other, and thank God that Zoom existed, because it was much better than not Zoom. But there's a level of connection here that still leads to disconnection. As much as there's a black bar separating every single individual, uh, this is kind of how we can live our community. Like how we, have, how we can live our lives together. We're sort of in, sort of connected, but not really like overlapping, not really in like um, overstaying our welcome, uh, not, never transgressing that for sure. Not really like being involved in each other's lives so close that those black lines don't even exist anymore. We're just kind of like become one thing altogether. We isolate ourselves by God by going about our day without hearing and surrendering to his words. We isolate ourselves from others in the church by being in the same room as them, but not really being with them. You know, you can be with someone, not really be with them, right? Your whole self. Well, I don't know how else to say that except repeat myself. You can be physically present without actually being fully present. We isolate ourselves from people who aren't believers yet when we lack the emotional and relational generosity that God calls us to and empowers us for. Jesus did not die to create individuals. He died to create a people. He didn't even die to create this. He died to create this. As, and more that we live that out, the more we're going to reap the benefits of what it means to be God's new people that he's created for himself. We were not a people, now we are a people. Not just any people, God's special possession. If you follow Jesus, that is who you are. And you know, all of us wander from that. We all have that, right? That's why we confess together. But that is who you are. And so we're called to live like it, not isolated, but together present in all the ways that that word means. So who we are comes before what we do. 
And being a part of this temple, being a part of this new people, we, we are called to live differently. So what's the purpose of this new temple? What's the purpose of this new people? Like, so what? It's a great question to ask. And sometimes, maybe even at the end of my sermons, I know lots of sermons I've listened to at the end of it, I'm kind of like, well, that was great information, but like, so what? So we're trying to get to that so what thing. Basically, God, what God gives us is a purpose for our community. God did not create community for community's sake. Like, it's something beyond that. Like, God didn't exist in the Trinity for the Trinity's sake, and that's it. He did something else. So what is the point of all this? Well, we get some of this in verse 9. We get some of it in verses 11 and 12. Uh, through Jesus, this is who we are. If that's true, what do we do? There's no real cool slogan here. It's just something basic. What we do is we join God in his mission. We don't go on our missions. We join him in his mission where he's already working, specifically in what we say and how we live. Like at verse 9, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God is on a mission for the whole earth to be drenched in the knowledge of his glory, for Charlton to be saturated with God's glory, with the knowledge of who he is, for Manchester to reflect heaven, which, I mean, we know it's far off just as much as we're far off. And part of this new temple and this new people means we get invited by God to join him in exactly doing that. That is bonkers. That is crazy. And that actually makes living the Christian life really fun. I mean, it doesn't make it any easier. It makes it more difficult, but it makes it really fun. And before we think that mission is some kind of word we use to help people out there know the stuff that we already know, I think what we're going to find out, actually, is that uh, it's something that we do so other people will benefit, yes, but it's also like the best way for us to live. Like, we get a benefit from that as well as part of discipleship. It's not like once you get discipled, then you do that. It's not like the add-on to the Christian life. Well, Let's look at first what it says. First in what we say. Uh, so at the end of verse 9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Declaring requires other people being around. Declaring requires words coming from us and to other people. You can't really declare to yourself. That doesn't really work. It's not really what the word is about. And you can't declare in silence either. But what are we declaring? We're declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's no hero story for, for us here. There's God's story here. The praises of God who took us in our wandering isolation and gave us a new life. He made us into a new people, into a special possession. And we're surrounded by people declaring all sorts of praises all the time for all sorts of things, and we do that too, and, that, and that's okay. But how does talking about the amazing reality of being dead then getting new life, how does that work its way into our conversations? Like, Does it at all? Does it ever? And this is talking about more than inviting someone to church. I mean, that can be part of it. But inviting someone to church is different than declaring the praises of the one who called you from darkness to light. Because only you have that story of what it meant for you to go from darkness to light. And other people need to hear that. I need to hear that. Part of your spiritual sacrifice, we talked about that earlier, as God's royal and holy priesthood is talking about the love of God with those that you love. You've loved them already. This is a way to love them. God has them in your life. And so if you don't speak, who's going to do that? Most people that we know, probably, unless they're around Redeemer, the only other Christians they know are you. And that's not an impossible burden for you to bear. That's an opportunity for God to be able to work through you. It's not on you to convert somebody, but it's on you to be obedient with what God's given you. And God has given you a story of being called from death to life. Are our missional communities centers of education 
or are they centers for mission? Because often the default, especially in like conservative evangelical background churches, the default is we educate, 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 and not actually give people like the path to live that education out. We become brains on sticks. But God cares about these things too, like what we actually do. God cares about hands. Do we set our missional communities up in order to make it as easy as possible for people to join in? For us to be able to declare these kinds of praises. See, declaring, going back to the plural verb thing, it's a plural verb again, which is crazy. Uh, which me, the good thing about that is not all on you, which is why we have missional communities and not individual missions. That's why the best way we can talk about the gospel with other people is when there's a community of people talking about the gospel. Because now it's not on you to impart all the aspects of the gospel. It can be done one-on-one, but it's best done as a people together. That's what Peter's saying here. And before this all becomes a hammer of guilt, before you feel like, oh, maybe the one thing that's worse than talking about money is talking, about, talking to people about Jesus, or maybe it's reverse, I don't know. Let me say this. Some people need to have a lengthy, long conversation with someone in this. Some people, you just might need to say you go to church, and then that will trigger all sorts of things. I don't know, because I'm not in your position. And you don't have to feel an unnecessary, impossible level of guilt either. You just have to ask, what's that small next step? And God will tell you. We're all at different points here in our spiritual lives. It's not about you being the hero. It's about downward mobility. So we get to ask the Spirit to work. And please, let's do this in our missional communities, and not just in the times when we meet together, but outside our formal meetings as well. Now, regardless of how this works out, know this. Part of the reason that Jesus was rejected, as you read here, and then raised up, part of that reason is to empower you to tell other people about him. He could have just told them, but he's inviting you to join him in his mission. It's an amazing thing. So we join God's mission, not just in what we say, but also in how we live and what we do. There's some things that we don't do. It says that we're supposed to abstain from sinful desires. And, and Peter says specifically, uh, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. If you've been living a difficult life and being a Christian, it's, it can be a difficult life, there's such an opportunity to give in. And that's true for any kind of difficulty. We, what we want to, I know like when I'm really tired, but I want, uh, give me all the carbs, give me all the Netflix, give me all the sofas. Like that's all it takes. And I just want to kind of give in. Sometimes that's fine and that's good. Um, but probably not every day. That's probably not true every day. You know, so it's really easy when it's a difficult life to just give in. Peter knows that. He's not saying it's easy. He's saying abstain from sinful desires. Why? Because they're trying to kill you. It's waging war against your soul. Why would you want to give in to the thing that's going to suck life from you like some kind of vampire? We don't want to, we want, we need all the life we can get. We don't need to be involved in the things that are trying to destroy us. There's enough out there that's trying to destroy us anyway. We don't need to aid in that destroying process. So it's a really good thing that we live this life of mission because it stops us from giving in to that which will slowly kill us anyway. There are other things that we do, are, are called to do. I was going to say things that we do do, but then I was going to say do do, and then I just did anyway. That's why I crossed it out. Uh, anyway, we're called to live overwhelmingly good lives. So good that even amongst false accusations, people still see the good things. I mean, look, trolls are going to troll. Haters are going to hate. You're going to get stupid people saying stupid things. Foolish and ignorant is what... Um, uh, is what will, comes up in, in Peter. You're going to get people you know, calling you out and things. You're like, I know that's not true. What, how are we supposed to undo that? Not by getting back at them, 
not by kind of like subtly, you know, destroying them in her own kind of passive-aggressive Christian-y kind of way, but by living overwhelmingly good lives. Christians shouldn't be hateful online. We shouldn't let our prejudices rule us. Christian men treat women with the same respect and dignity they deserve. Christians have a different sexual ethic to the majority culture. So there's some things that we don't do, but also Christians welcome people from any kind of sexual ethic or gender identity background. So those are some things that we do. And that is completely disruptive, to be radically welcoming, and then also say to radically follow the way Jesus has called us to live. We uh, spend money differently because we're generous. And not, I'm not even talking about you should give your money to the church, but the way that we view our money is going to be different because now it's part of joining God in his mission and whatever we do. And this is the crazy thing. I'm, I'm far, probably going far too long because I've been off book so many times. Uh, you are paid. If you get paid by someone outside the church, which is nearly everybody in this room, you're being paid by an organization to be a full-time missionary. And they don't even know that they're doing that, but they are because they're allowing you to live in a place that only you can live. Everyone here is a full-time missionary, paid full-time missionary, every single person. And we're all gonna have different ways in how we work that out. And if you have more time to work towards that, it's gonna be different than people who have less time, that is completely fine. But no, that is a, that is a part of who we are, just by nature of being here. And what's crazy, you have businesses who are paying you to live that way. They may not know that, but that's okay. They don't need to know it. We might give our money away freely to others, but we don't give our bodies away freely to others. And you know what? And when we do these good works, when we do these good things, 99.7 of the time, the reason why people will think that we're doing those good things is because they say, oh, because you're such a good person. You're such a nice person. Oh, church is just, they're just it's a nice community. They're full of nice people. That is horrible. I hate hearing that. But that's what people will think if we don't marry our actions with words, which is why Peter doesn't say, just act in a way that's Christian and people will all of a sudden get what the gospel is about. He doesn't say that. He said, but he also doesn't say, just say things and don't live that way because that makes hypocrites, right? Self-righteous hypocrites. There's a, an erroneously uh, attributed quote to St. Francis of Assisi, who was an amazing kind of saint who lived you know, uh, over a millennia ago, saying, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I don't know if you've heard this before. St. Francis of Assisi never actually said that. In fact, St. Francis of Assisi was known for preaching. What he would have said would uh, preach the gospel always if necessary, and by the way, it's always necessary to use words. Even the word preach, it's, it's declared, it's using words. People just don't kind of fall into the idea of, oh, I totally get the reason why you're doing that is because uh, Jesus saw you as dead, he brought you to life, and now you're living out of that new life and that new freedom, being a new people. People are not gonna get that unless you tell them the reason why you're doing it. Now, it doesn't mean every time you do something good, you have to attach a little thing and just say, by the way, I'm not a good person. I'm not a nice person. The reason why I'm doing this is because of Jesus. Now, sometimes that's going to be the case. But you don't have to be uh, this always socially awkward person to kind of always put an asterisk to every single thing you do. But there, if, if we're not using our words, we're not really living into who we are. Uh, and if we're not using our actions, we're not really living into who we are. There's some kind of marriage between those. And you know what? You may not even know how to do it in every situation. In fact, you won't. And that's why we ask the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do. Where the heck am I? I'm just going to skip forward here. Living on God's mission, outside of something that um, maybe we might feel guilted into doing, is actually a much more rewarding life. It's a much more rewarding life, much more meaningful. I mean, if you haven't walked 
through with someone or haven't seen and been a part of walking through someone from unbelief to faith, oh man, you're, you're just missing out. That's an amazing experience to go through. And we're not going to get them all the time. We shouldn't, like, you know, we're not going to be overly, like, naively optimistic here. But what we think these words are so important. As a church, we've structured how we even do life here as a church around it. We could aim for people to come on a Sunday and get numbers up here. We could do that if we wanted. But I don't really want to do that. And there might be some okay benefit to that. But what we do is we prioritize missional communities because of what we learn here. We can't live this out on a Sunday morning. We just literally can't. We can talk about it. We can learn from it. This is how we're supposed to live. In this context, we can't really live this out in this way. To be a new temple, to be a new, new people, living in God's mission with our words and actions. And when we join God in his mission, we get to live into this uh, simultaneously everyday and mundane and exciting life because we get to see how God's going to work. Now, really, through all this, through before we ponder our own wandering, who we follow is a wanderer himself. We need to stop and think of who we follow. As Christians, we follow Jesus, the wanderer. Now, he wasn't a wanderer from God, but because he was so connected to God, that meant he was a wanderer in some context here on earth. He, being God, lived the perfect godly life, and because of that, he was a wanderer to people. He was ostracized. And as we follow him, we're found not as wanderers to him, but as his special possession, but a home for him. The more we're found in him, the more we will feel wanderers in this world because it's not our home, and there's a better one. That's the good news. There's an even better one. Jesus, as a wanderer on earth, was rejected. He was mocked. He was overlooked. He was shamed. When he was publicly tortured to death, it was outside the city walls. One more level of the Roman officials and the religious leaders saying, he's not one of us. He wasn't upwardly mobile. He wasn't going up the ladder of success. He isn't a typical rise to power hero story. His path was downward. And so it should be no surprise for those who are little Christs as we follow Christ. If Jesus is fundamental to our identity, that's how we're going to live. If Jesus is fundamental to our identity, that means there will always be an element of wandering in our life here. We're never going to feel completely settled in our home here on earth. And that is actually a good thing. And we should actually be disturbed. We feel a little bit too settled here on earth. Jesus died so that our isolated lives would be put to death. He died so that our wannabe hero journeys would get torn up. He died so that all the parts of you that want to chase after all the parts that aren't of God, they're in the ground. They've been put in the ground six feet under, never to come up again. And in the power of his resurrection, he has recreated you to become part of a people, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a new temple for his spirit to dwell. We together get to be God's special possession. So as we eat and drink together in a moment with these, this is what we proclaim. We proclaim we were not a people and now we are a people. So as you eat and we're in a moment when we sing and we eat and drink, think about this. As you are eating and drinking, you have been claimed by God. Once not a people, now a people. Once you were hungry and starving, now you're fed and satisfied. And this is obviously just a taste of a meal. But the real meal comes afterwards, doesn't it? The bread and cup is a symbol of Jesus' body and blood, rejected so that we'll never, we will never, ever be. And for everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who is living into this reality of being God's people, 
we're invited to eat and drink together. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to be a part of God's people. Uh, you're, and this is a celebration that we get to uh, join, everyone gets to join in on. Now, if you aren't yet part of this new people, please don't um, eat and drink saying that you are. 